came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings in news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 6th of February. And this is the first episode of our 2020 season, and this year we'll be celebrating five years of Astrophys. We're starting each episode with a community service announcement. You will have heard of the devastating bushfires still raging down here in Australia. Climate change is real and accelerating, and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians, to develop planet-saving policies. Today's guest is Dr. Belinda Nicholson, and we're zooming over to Oxford to speak with her about her amazing career as a planet hunter extraordinaire. Then we will, as usual, cross to Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave in Adelaide to hear what to look for up in the night and morning skies over the next two weeks. Then I'll give a short news roundup to round off the show. So right now, let's cross over 10 time zones to the UK. Hello, Belinda. Hello. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Belinda Nicholson, postdoctoral research assistant at the University of Oxford, Department of Physics. Now, Belinda has degrees from Melbourne University and her PhD was awarded for her research at the University of Southern Queensland. Now, Belinda is a planet hunter, and currently her research involves exoplanet hunting using exotic telescope data, and previously she has investigated the behaviour of teenage stars, and her work has taken her all over Australia and the world from presenting her work at conferences in Europe and the United States to collecting data on mountains in New South Wales and South America. And right now, she's in Oxford. Thank you for speaking with us, Belinda. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So before we look at your fabulous research in detail, can you tell us where you grew up, please? And were dark skies a part of your childhood? So I grew up in inner suburban Melbourne, so I didn't really get to see much of a dark sky because unfortunately, with as with all large cities and the light pollution there, you don't really get to see terribly much of the night sky. But we did go camping a lot, go hiking up in the Victorian Alps, and certainly there I have vivid memories of seeing a properly dark sky for the first time and just how absolutely glorious the Milky Way looks from the Southern Hemisphere. And that was, that definitely sparked a curiosity in me. 
cool. So please tell us a little about your school days and your early ambitions and how those ambitions might have evolved. So through school, I was always a very curious child. I was always someone who asked lots of questions. Um, I definitely annoyed my teachers with the amount of questions that I asked. I was a scientist right from the beginning. Like I was always wanting to understand how things worked and, and tried to explain phenomena around me. Um, even for, there's this great video of me in kindergarten where we're going along in a bus uh, from a school excursion and it's all, and, you know, the, the bus is bumping around and you know, the teachers made the comment on camera, oh, it's very bumpy. And then, of course, me being the smart little know-it-all saying, yes, that's because there's bumps on the road. <laughs> that's because there's potholes on the road. And, you know, right from, right from three years old, I was trying to explain the phenomena that I saw around me. And, I, yeah, that was a hilarious video. So right from then, I was always curious. It was sort of more middle of high school in year 10 when we were sort of having careers uh, advice and deciding what final year subjects we were going to take, I was like, right, I want to do a PhD in astrophysics, um, which, you know, is, is not exactly common. Often people in year 10 haven't decided yet what they want to do. So I guess I was a bit strange in that I knew that I wanted to do at least science because I wanted to explore more and understand more about the world around me. Uh, and I was drawn to physics in that way because it's it's sort of that very fundamental look at the world. It's it's understanding right from the very, very basics how things work. I guess I also loved astronomy. I loved the the beauty of the night sky and the beauty of space and the fascination of space. You know, there's this vast emptiness, but also there's so much out there at the same time. Uh, so I guess I was just very curious. I wanted to understand our universe, not just our day-to-day -day world. So I went to high school in Melbourne. I got a place at the University of Melbourne to study physics in undergrad. That was quite fascinating, actually, my undergrad degree, uh, because I was the first year of Melbourne Uni trialling their new Bachelor of Science model. So a quarter of my subjects had to come from outside the Faculty of Science. And this was the first year that they'd, they'd run this style of degree. And while it meant that I couldn't take quite as many science subjects, I think it's been very useful to me in my career because it sort of broadened my horizons a bit, particularly with writing, because I ended up doing some art subjects, which forced me to really be able to write an essay well, which I think stood me in good stead for my science career and how important writing is in science as well. And it's working well. So after that successful school career and your undergrad and master's degrees, you followed that up with your PhD at the University of Southern Queensland, the magnetic activity, winds and planets of young, cool stars. Now, was that fun? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I really did have a ball with my PhD. I mean, it wasn't always spectacular. I mean, a PhD is a roller coaster ride. I know very, very few people who had a smooth ride through their PhD. As the title suggests, I jumped between a few different things in my PhD. Uh, I started off with doing magnetohydrodynamic wind modelling of cool stars. 
uh, realized that wind modeling wasn't really what I was interested in doing. I was far more interested in looking at data. So then I switched sideways within that project to look at a slightly different aspect of cool stars, looking at actually mapping their magnetic field. And in mapping their magnetic fields and their surface brightness, I also tried to find planets. And then from that became very interested in hunting for planets as well. Fantastic. Now, that move from Melbourne up to Toowoomba and the University of Southern Queensland, how did that move come about? Well, I got to the end of my master's and I decided I definitely wanted to do a PhD. I wasn't done with astronomy yet at all. I was completely in love. And so I began hunting around for PhD positions and I saw advertised the PhD position at USQ. And then I had a Skype call with Brad Carter, who's the head of the group there and who's my principal PhD supervisor. And we got along really well. We had a great chat and he told me about all the exciting things that were planned for USQ. So many exciting things have taken place there. So it's been a very exciting move. It, it was a bit of a leap of faith. Certainly going from the bustling inner city Melbourne life of University of Melbourne to a regional university in Toowoomba. So Toowoomba's two hours west of Brisbane. It's up on the top of a, a mountain, sort of. It's, it's on the Great Dividing Range. And it has that large country town feel. It's a lot quieter than Melbourne. It's a little bit more laid back. It's definitely a, a, a very different feeling to living in Melbourne. So that was, that was definitely a bit of adjusting. It was a different way of life. I couldn't just pop around the corner to a cafe. I had to actually get on a bus or get on a bicycle as it was then because I didn't have a car. And I realized just how lucky I was to take that leap of faith to go to a regional university. It was an amazing experience. I had so many opportunities there that I never would have had if I had been at a larger university. Because you're, you know, one of only a few people within a group, you end up taking on a lot more responsibility than you would in a larger group with more senior people there. So I got to organize conferences. I got to have a lot of experience uh, speaking with media as well, which I really enjoyed. Uh, certainly the local Toowoomba News was always very excited when something cool was happening in the astronomy group. And also USQ have a fantastic media team uh, who are very happy to work with us as well. So it was really a fantastic experience. I think I wouldn't have got as much out of my PhD if I'd been at, say, ANU or if I'd stayed at Melbourne Uni. Uh, so it was definitely the right move for me. And yeah, I, I got a lot out of it. I got a fairly broad PhD. I got to try a lot of things. And I think it's definitely made me a much more well-rounded scientist at the end. And it sounds like it was very fortuitous in lots of ways, particularly the commissioning of Minerva Australis. Could you tell us a bit about your exoplanet hunting exploits with the Minerva Australis Telescope and TESS. It sounds like the USQ has a very effective setup using an array of off-the-shelf 70-centimetre telescopes up at Mount Kent. So what techniques and technologies do you use to identify or confirm exoplanets using the Minerva Australis array? 
So the Minerva Australis instrument and array is a planet hunting machine, is how I would describe it. So the idea is that TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, is looking for blinking of stars, so the slight dimming of stars due to a planet passing in front of the star. And once they've found planet candidates, we then need to follow them up to confirm them. And we do that with the radial velocity technique at Minerva Australis. So rather than looking for the blinking of stars, we look for the wobble of stars. We look for the gravitational tug of a planet on the host star. And we do that using the Doppler technique. So we look for the slight redshift and the slight blue shift of the star as it wobbles towards us and away from us. And we can do that with high-resolution spectroscopy and, as you said, an array of telescopes. We can point all of those telescopes to the target star and then that increases the amount of signal that we get so we're able to look at fainter stars than we would with one telescope. And it's much cheaper to put an array of 0.7-metre telescopes out there than to build just one big telescope. So we're getting quite a lot of bang for our buck. Fantastic. Now, a follow-up question, Belinda, on that. Your Minerva Australis array was in the news last week here in Australia with a really interesting discovery, and I see that you are one of the lead authors of the archive paper about this discovery of a warm sub-Saturn planet orbiting a star which is 250 light-years away. What are sub-Saturn planets? And tell us about this discovery. So sub-Saturn just means that it's something that's a bit smaller than Saturn. So it's somewhere a little bit larger than a Neptune, but smaller than a Saturn. So it's a a gas giant planet. This is quite an exciting find, not just because it's Queensland's first planet. In fact, I believe it's also Australia's first planet confirmation to come out of the Transiting Exoplanet Survey satellite. So... This is a nice discovery because we don't know terribly many. We don't have a huge sample of these types of planets. We can use them to understand a bit more about planet formation history. We don't have any sub-Saturns within our solar system. In fact, that's it's actually quite common amongst planet hunting to find things nowadays that don't exist in our solar system. We're finding all sorts of very exotic types of planets that we didn't think we'd be able to find. And this sub-Saturn is an example of just that. That is sensational. So before we get into your new position at Oxford, can you tell us what piqued your initial interest in young, cool stars and how you chose your big question and how you selected your PhD supervisor? So... I guess I'm always interested in strange things and young stars are one of these strange things that are out there. They're poorly behaved. They are, you know, they're very active. They've got spots all over their surface. They flare. Uh, There's all sorts of fascinating phenomena that we can study on them. And I became interested in this because, you know, There's so much happening there. They're far more interesting to study than uh, the star like our sun, or at least that's what I thought at the time. And I still sort of think that too now. Also, just the challenges that come with studying those stars, they're not straightforward. 
uh, you really do have to apply some pretty sophisticated techniques in order to be able to understand their behaviour and particularly trying to find planets around them. They're the worst place to try and look for planets. And I think because they're the worst and the hardest place to look for planets, that sort of piqued my interest. And then in terms of selecting my supervisors, I was very lucky that USQ had some great international contacts and they were able to put me in touch with uh, field experts in the particular areas that I was studying in my PhD. So when it came to mapping the surface brightness and magnetic fields of these cool young stars, Gaty Hussein, who works at the European Southern Observatory, was already collaborating with another one of the lecturers at USQ, and so I was put in touch with her. And then that started our professional relationship and uh, she became one of my co-supervisors. So in addition to that, uh, we had Alini Vodotto. So she was key in doing a lot of the stellar wind modeling. She's the expert in the, the stellar wind modeling section of my PhD. So again, through contacts, through collaborations within the group, uh, she also became one of my co-supervisors. And then on top of that, so I had a, a wonderful supervisory team of four people. There was Lee Brookshaw, who is a, a brilliant man, uh, a lecturer at USQ, and his expertise in high-performance computing uh, proved absolutely invaluable to a lot of my PhD because a lot of this required quite a lot of uh, computer grunt work, and he was there to advise me along the way and get me set up on that side of things. That's fantastic. So for your PhD, you were into... T Tauri stars. Now, for many people, stars are the same. They're all the same and they're just white dots up in the night sky. Perhaps for new listeners, could you give us a brief summary of Star Classification 101? There really is a fantastic range of stars out there. There are so many types of stars out there and astronomers love putting labels on things. And so... Oh, goodness, where to start? So the first order classification of stars, the first way we sort of, okay, what sort of box do we want to put these stars in is spectral typing. So you've got your very, very big, very, very hot stars, which burn out in only a few million years. And these are stars that are, you know, tens of times the size of our sun. Those are our O and B stars. They're very hot. They're very blue, actually. They emit a lot in the blue. Yep. Moving down, moving to cooler, we have our F-type stars, our G-type stars. Our sun is a G. So from G downwards, we then sort of call those the cool stars. So uh, G to K to M. These are not in alphabetical order. Yep. It's, it's quite a, a known thing in you know undergraduate astronomy is trying to memorise <laughs> the, the letter orders of spectral types of stars because it is not straightforward it is yes it's there's a whole history in astronomy the, the cool thing about astronomy being one of the oldest of the sciences is that there's a lot of legacy in the way that we do astronomy there's you know hundreds of years of legacy of the way we name things and the way we talk about things yep. and spectral typing is one of these it's one of the oldest sort of dreams of scientific astronomy so that's sort of the spectral classification of going, okay, how hot is it? How cool is it? And then we can look at the evolution of stars. So your star forms from a molecular cloud, 
a cloud of molecular hydrogen which contracts and fragments and those fragments contract and eventually you get stars out of those. So they gravitationally collapse inwards further and further. In the centre then there's so much energy there, atoms are being pressed together that eventually you get hydrogen fusing and then your star is born. But that's not quite an adult yet, that's sort of just your infant stage. Then all sorts of physics happens with the gas around it. Some of the gas gets pulled in, your star grows, some of that gas and also the debris, so you're not talking a pure hydrogen cloud anymore because a lot of the molecular clouds out there have been contaminated by generations of stars previously that have died and spewed out heavier materials. So you've also got fragments of rock, of ice, all sorts of things that then form a disk around it. That disk eventually forms the planets and the star in the middle eventually sucks in as much gas as it ever will. It's hot, it's burning, it's spinning very fast. Ironically, so as it's pulling things in, you've also got a wind. So the gas that's and the plasma that's, that's too energetic gets spewed out as well. So you have high energy winds, all sorts of fascinating things happening. The magnetic fields haven't settled down to a stable dynamo yet. So at this stage, this is where we're sort of at the T-Tory stage. You've got a disc around you, a thick disc of gas and dust, and you're still accreting. So that means gathering gas into your host star. That's the classical T-Tory stage. After that, when you've already pulled in all of the gas that you're going to from the disc, and the, the winds that's already starting to come off the star have blown away the excess gas, then you're at your weakline t Tauri stage. And the weakline t Tauri stars are the one that I was interested in. They're much, more, they're much easier to observe because you don't have this excess gas and dust around you. So you can see the central star quite clearly, but they're also a fascinating time to be looking at these stars because we expect a lot of the giant planets to have formed. So this can be helpful to then test different planet formation mechanisms of seeing, okay, what sort of planetary architectures do we get around these young stars? But they're also, as I mentioned before, very difficult to find planets around because the star is really badly behaved. There's so much signal coming from the surface of the star that can drown out any planetary signals. Because a lot of planet hunting is all about interpreting the light from the star. We look at starlight and we interpret that starlight to infer the presence of a planet, whether it be the dimming of that starlight or whether it be the wobble, the Doppler shift of that, uh, that starlight. But if you've got the star that's doing all sorts of strange, funky things, then that can be very difficult to try and find planet signals underneath. Fantastic. I love the way you describe them as being badly behaved stars. So it's one thing to be young and cool but you can still be badly behaved. That's fantastic. Now, let's go off the main sequence and just talk for a moment about red supergiants. I knew they'd be in there, and Betelgeuse has been very much in the news recently. What's going on with that particular jolly red supergiant that used to be so loud in Orion? Yes, so Betelgeuse is at the other end of evolution to the T-Tauri stars that I was talking about. That's sort of the beginning. Betelgeuse is nearing the end of its life. It's a very big star. It was not a cool star. It was a medium to hot star. 
and it's quite massive. It's big, it's inflated, it's no longer in equilibrium in terms of its chemistry. So in terms of, you know, the fusion, the nuclear reactions that are happening inside, it's really sort of puttering out. It's it's no longer on a normal, uh, stable path like you are on the main sequence in your sort of quote-unquote adult lifetime of a star. <laughs> yep. So it's, it's really, it's you can think of it like a senile star. It's really, <laughs> it's, it's kind of losing it a bit. In fact, it's losing it a lot. It's, it's, it's on its way out. And astronomers are very excited because it's like, oh, it could go supernova at any time. And we don't quite understand in terms of human lifetime scales exactly, you know, when that could happen. So I think some astronomers have got a bit excited about, oh, it's dimmed because they looked at the last 10 years of, of data in the archives. So photometry, looking how bright it is and seeing it dim uh, more than it has in the, in the past decade. But, you know, on the lifetime of stars, a decade isn't very long at all. Yep. So while certainly it's dimmed more than it has in the last decade, we have uh, centuries of data on this star. Again, this is the advantage of, A, Betelgeuse being a very bright star in the night sky. It's one of these very sort of fundamental. It's part of the mythology, part of the culture of many societies and cultures around the world. The indigenous Australian culture have a, a whole lot of stories around Betelgeuse. So, I mean, it's a documented star, both in sort of verbal history, as well as more recently in the Western scientific history. Uh, we have centuries of uh, astronomers documenting its brightness. So it's certainly dimmed like this before, I believe. Who knows what this means? Maybe it's on its way out, but who knows? It could supernova in my lifetime. It could supernova in the lifetime of my grandchildren's grandchildren. When we're not quite sure, but I guess that's part of the exciting mystery. Exactly. And we're not telling people to hold their breath. No, no, <laughs> not quite. Thanks for that, Belinda. So let's talk now about your career move to the UK. How and why did that come about? And tell us about your plans to balance academia, research outreach and personal life, is that even possible? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, that's a great question. And if you know the answer, let me know. <laughs> so my career move to the UK has been a very exciting one. I count myself very lucky to have this job. I mean, getting a job like this is, it's partly hard work. Certainly, you know, the research and, and hours that I've put in to train myself up this far to be qualified for this job. But at the same time, I really have to acknowledge how much of it is also luck and privilege. You know, the job to open at the right time, to maybe in the life situation where I can just up and move because I don't have any children, I don't have any dependents or partners to worry about. So I could, you know, as a solo agent, I could make the decision to just up and move over to the UK to take up this position. It's been a great move. It's been challenging in all sorts of different ways, you know, adjusting to a new country. I've been lucky that it's English speaking, so I haven't had to learn a new language. Uh, but there's also sort of all sorts of subtle differences of, of coming to a new place, completely a new country, learning about, you know, the different bureaucratic systems, how the BIN system works, for example. Um, yeah all sorts of things like that. There's just like the little domestic things that you just don't think of. 
that you just get so used to living in one country and you go to another country and you're like, oh, wow, hey, this is different. That's been a fun experience. It's certainly the department here is a very exciting place to be. It's much bigger than USQ. So that's been another adjustment is being in a huge astronomy department and on top of that, a big physics department. So USQ has a very small physics department. In fact, most of the physics department is astronomy. Having a full physics department here has been fascinating. I get to you know talk to people doing quantum physics and solid state physics and all sorts of fascinating other things. And on top of that, I mean, the huge breadth of science that happens here. And then also adjusting within the college system. Oxford is structured very differently to the universities that you have in Australia. In fact, most of the universities in the world, Oxford's very unique in that a lot of the teaching happens through the colleges and the colleges play a really key fundamental role to the running of the university. And that's been something quite different. I've had the privilege of being able to get a non-stipendary junior research fellowship to Somerville College, and that's given me that college link, that's given me that exposure to that other side of life at Oxford. And certainly it's harder for research fellows here, postdoc researchers at Oxford, if they don't have that college affiliation, you can be a little bit adrift because you are sort of missing out on a big part of what Oxford University life is. So in terms of work-life balance, oh goodness, I'm still trying to figure that one out because a lot of the hobbies that I had back in Toowoomba, I've kind of had to change those around a bit. So I used to be really involved in competitive cheerleading. I did that for a number of years and I absolutely loved it. And I sort of made, was somewhat forced to make the decision to retire when I moved here because I haven't been able to find a cheerleading team in Oxford, which is a little bit sad. I've I've kind of told myself that it was time to retire, but I have found myself really missing it. But thankfully, my other great hobby, Australian rules football, I can still play that here. Oxford has the oldest Australian rules football team outside of Australia. So I've been able to join up with that footy team and they're a wonderful bunch of people, a lot of Australians. So it's a great way to uh, get in touch with other expat Aussies here and get together and, you know, you sometimes miss the accent. And so it's kind of nice being able to sit in a group and, you know, reminisce about life in Australia and also complain sometimes about how terrible the weather is here um, and how much we miss the sunshine. But, you know, all in all, it's, they're, they're a wonderful bunch of people and I'm, I'm very lucky that I still get to play that game here. Fantastic. It sounds like a very stimulating environment. Now, can we talk about planet hunting and a little bit more about your current research schedule? Let's focus on just one of your research projects, if that's possible. And following your sub-Saturn paper, what is the most puzzling, challenging and most enjoyable research that you're working on now, Belinda? And What instruments and data are you using? So at the moment, I'm really interested in trying to better understand how the behaviour of starlight affects our ability to detect planets. So this very much ties in with what I was doing on one scale with my PhD project. I was looking at sort of very large scale stellar activity and where the star was being, you know, really sort of shouting over the top of planet signals. And now I'm looking to try and shift, see if, you know, stars that are 
being active sort of on on the level of a, a low whisper, but where the planet signals are sort of even quieter uh, below those signals. This is quite challenging. So here we have some very brilliant people, Suzanne Agron, who's my supervisor and the, the head of our, our group here. She has developed some really fascinating techniques to be able to statistically analyze the data that we get. So radial velocity data. So this is the type of data that we get from Minerva, but also using data from other telescopes such as HARP, yep. the ESO 3.6 meter telescope with the HARPS instrument. So that's another high precision radial velocity machine. HARPS is an absolute workhorse in terms of planet hunting. It's amazingly stable. It gets beautiful data. And it's on a larger telescope as well. So that one's useful for looking for slightly fainter things, uh, looking for slightly smaller signals. But even with Minerva, I'm interested in trying to utilize some of these techniques that they've employed here, trying to learn as best I can all the skills that they have here to try and apply those techniques of peering beneath the stellar activity to try and find planets that have small amplitude signals. Now, those types of planets are either things that are, are smaller compared to their host star or also things on a longer period orbit. If your planet is uh, further separated from your star, then the amplitude of your signal, the size of your signal is going to be smaller. So if we're going to try and look at planetary system architectures that are a little bit further away, further separated from their host star, then we're probably going to need to be using some of these techniques in order to get below some of the stellar behaviour. But also with tests, we're finding transiting planets around some of these badly behaved stars. So in order to be able to confirm even some of these bigger planets found through tests, then we're going to need to employ some of these techniques. So it's the exciting work of, you know, no longer just picking the stars that are nicely behaved and searching for those planets. We're now going, okay, let's up our game. Let's try and confirm some of these planets around some of these more difficult stars. Fantastic. I love the way scientists are so understated when they say this is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> now, you're there at Oxford, and I presume you also have some teaching and lecturing commitments. What is 2020 going to look like for you? So I'm actually quite lucky in this position that I'm employed full time as a researcher. So I don't actually have any teaching commitments which is quite different. So my last few months at USQ was full-time teaching. So yeah. it's actually been kind of nice to have that teaching experience, but now to actually be able to sink my teeth full-time into research. At some stage, I would like to get back into the teaching. Certainly teaching at Oxford is very different. It's a lot more sort of smaller group teaching run as tutorials through colleges. I imagine at some point in time at my college, I'll end up doing some tutoring but for now, I'm just excited to be doing research. But on top of that, I guess, instead of doing teaching responsibilities, I'm taking on more responsibilities with outreach. And that's, that's something that I'm also very interested and passionate about is communicating the exciting science that we do to members of the general public here. Yeah. Now, I've seen your Curious Kids newspaper articles and you also do science festival outreach and science in the pub nights and I see you're scheduled already for some outreach events in the UK. Why do you personally do outreach? 
What's your favourite and why is it important? So I've always believed that, you know, a lot of the science that I do, a lot of the research that I do comes from public funds. And so I feel some sort of sense of responsibility to then communicate that with the public to, you know, let them know that their money isn't wasted. But also I'm just really excited and awestruck by space and I really want to just share that with other people. I think that they also get a lot out of it. It's sometimes nice to hear about things that are just so fantastic and amazing and real. I I think my favourite form of outreach is probably giving public talks. I really love those sites in the pub nights where, you know, I can just get super enthusiastic about the work that I do and try and share that enthusiasm with other people. An example of that was, in fact, two days ago, the astrophysics department had its big flagship outreach event for the year, Stargazing Oxford. And as part of that, I gave a talk about exoplanets and we went on a bit of a journey through different types of the the weird and wonderful exoplanets that we've found. And, you know, it was fun giving that talk, but it was also fun, you know, sometimes taking a step back and appreciating, oh, wow, we've, we've found some really cool things. You know, we found lava worlds and we've found planets orbiting binary stars and, in fact, planets within like a quadruple star system where you've got a planet going around a binary and then you've got another binary orbiting those three bodies in the middle. It's just, yeah, some really weird and wacky things that we never thought we would find. And, yeah, outreach, it's a chance to share the awe and wonder of the universe with other people but at the same time, you know, for myself, it gives me a chance to actually like reflect and go, oh, wow, this is this is really cool. Fantastic. I can hear the excitement in your voice now. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or career paths or equity or our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Oh, my gosh, where to begin? Um, that's a lot of different topics that I could rant on. Equity is is such an important one. I think what's led me to be sort of a a scientist and what's sort of not killed my enthusiasm for studying science has been I've always kept this this childish curiosity about the world. And so I feel like not not killing people's excitement and curiosity for things is is one thing. But also I think growing up as an only child has meant that I wasn't ever stereotyped really into anything of, oh, this is a girl's toy, this is a boy's toy. I played with everything. I had Lego. I had a fort with toy soldiers and an actual working cannon like it was a little spring-loaded cannon that you'd like put matchsticks in the end and they'd shoot. Anyway, I loved that as a kid. Like I played, I had everything. And then I had Barbie dolls as well and, you know, and all of that. And I feel, you know, allowing kids to just explore what they want to explore and not telling them not to play with any particular thing, just letting them explore the world for themselves without pressure to conform to any particular, you know, ideal is that that is what is going to help get more women 
into the hard, you know, the STEM sciences. I think that's that's really, it starts so young. Um, I think we lose focus when it comes to, you know, by, by the end of high school, it's almost already too late. Uh, you really need to encourage it right from kindergarten. That's really where we need to focus. Representation counts. It really counts. And not just in terms of gender, also in terms of, of race, you know, having more Indigenous people of colour yep. uh, scientists represented. But even I think one of the big um, influences for me growing up and envisioning myself as a scientist and as an astronomer was the movie The Dish. I saw Australians, I saw people who I identified with as Australians doing these really exciting cutting-edge science, this exciting moment in history. It was Australians doing this and seeing that represented in film had a really great influence on me. It's like, oh, hey, they're Australians. That means Australians can do this. It's not just something that's there for the Americans or for the Europeans. Because a lot of these sort of big scientific figures we see as people from overseas. And I think as an Australian growing up, it was really important for me to see Australian scientists and see people who I identified as coming from where I came from, from where I grew up, as being able to go off and, and do these things. So I guess that's also a shout out to people in creative arts and the representation of scientists in the creative arts, I think that's also incredibly important that you have the diversity of representation, not just in the curriculum, so not just having more diversity of the scientists talked about in the school curriculum, but also the way they get represented in film and television and having diversity in, in that and also having a very human look at those scientists. I think what I love about the dish is the the very human nature of the way those characters are portrayed. They're scientists, but also they're very human. And I think that was also something that I very much appreciate in that film. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? I'm constantly keeping my eye on what's coming out of tests so there's so many exciting planets that are being discovered and you know it's just more and more every week as the data comes down i'm that's what's exciting for me at the moment but i'm a little bit biased because i kind of like planets so <laughs> fantastic well thank you so much dr belinda nicholson on behalf of our listeners it's been really fabulous speaking with you thank you for your time and getting up early so that we could work through the time difference between the UK and here in Australia. And I hope you continue to have a wonderful time there and keep enjoying it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. Well, evening. Bye, Belinda. Bye. And now here's our cross to Adelaide. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. It's 2020. Welcome to our 2020 season. And I've just realised that we are currently in our fifth year of the Astrophys podcast. 
That's fantastic. And uh, you may uh, know that uh, 2020 is equally visible by five. And not only that, we're recording this on the 2nd of the 2nd, 2020, which makes it a palindrome in the standard military time presentation. So it's 02, 02, 2020, which is the same backwards as it's forwards, which is quite a, quite amusing, apart from the fact, of course, that 2020 is evenly visible by the number of years we've been doing this podcast. Fantastic. And we're also coming up to our 100th episode soon and we'll also probably be ticking over our 50,000 downloads at some stage this year. That's a lot of zeros in that so um, it should be it should be a very good year for numbers visible uh, by 10. Excellent Ian. So can you tell us Ian what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Over the Christmas period, a lot has been happening. Venus is still bright in the evening sky. It's easily seen 60 minutes uh, the sun sets. If you have a small telescope uh, or even large telescope, you'll see that uh, Venus is now a uh, quite distinct gibbous moon shape and heading towards a half moon shape. If you have access to an ultraviolet filter, you may be able to see markings on Venus. Fantastic, and I did see somewhere that people are seeing Neptune near Venus and they're seeing it through binoculars. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, Neptune was closest to Venus a few days ago and if you know where to look, you can see Neptune and Venus quite close together. But Neptune is quite dim and you need really dark skies. The brightness of uh, Venus can overwhelm Neptune. However, in the coming months, Venus and Uranus will be close together, and that will be a very interesting meeting to see. That's the evening sky. Most planetary action is in the morning sky. Yep. So if you get up at about 60 minutes before sunrise, you'll see a beautiful lineup of uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Now, Saturn's going to be quite low on the horizon, and for this week, maybe still big to see against the horizon. And what's really cool is that Mars is in the heart of the Milky Way at the moment. And if you are watching Mars with binoculars, you'll see it moving against a range of beautiful but thin clusters. Over the fortnight, you'll see Mars heading towards the Triton and the Moon Nebula. This will be an excellent view in binoculars. So to sum up, we've got Venus being absolutely beautiful in the evening. Morning skies, we have a beautiful lineup Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, three bright planets. Mars is in the heart of the Milky Way, and over this week you'll see it pass through some uh, beautiful uh, nebulas and clusters until it finally uh, passes through uh, between the Moon and Triton Nebula, which will be quite spectacular. And then on the 20th, we'll have Jupiter incredibly close to the Big Crescent Moon, which looks wonderful to the unaided eye. Extremely good binoculars and quite fascinating in small telescopes. Fantastic, Ian. And once again, we'll say to step outside and look uppity. Now, have you got a tangent for us, Ian? I've got an inkling, I've got a feeling that maybe you'll be talking about Beetlejuice. I will be talking about Beetlejuice. If you're wandering out and about, for Australians and Southern Hemispherians, if you look to the south, you'll see uh, towards the north what looks to be an upside-down saucepan. 
perhaps the belt and sword of Orion or the northern hemisphere, it'll be almost directly over here. Orion consists of more than just the saucepan and its sword or handle. It's also a big bright star, Bellatrix, Sire, and Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a bright red giant star, and it's one of the more obvious stars in the sky. But what's been happening over the holidays, and everyone's been uh, away from our, uh, our podcasting, is that uh, Betelgeuse has become quite dim. Now, uh, Betelgeuse is, is very interesting because it's a red giant. If you uh, are looking up at the sky and you'll see Betelgeuse, red giant, if you look over to the west, you'll also see another bright red star in the beginning of a A-shaped group of stars, or during the, the northern hemisphere, it's a B-shaped group of stars. And uh, this is Aldebaran, this is another red giant. Red giants are stars that are nearing the end of their life, and they're starting, they've, they've used up most of their hydrogen, and they're starting to burn other things in their nuclear uh, furnaces. As this happens, the outer layers of the star get fluffed up, the star becomes redder, and eventually it gets to the point where thermonuclear fusion no longer sustain the mass of the star. The star collapses, then uh, explodes out, leaving a packed body behind, and that body may be either a white or a neutron star or a black hole. Of course, it's uh, a supernova explosion. And when this happens, you expect to see an enormously bright star where the, where the, where the uh, original star used to be. So we expect that uh, Betelgeuse to become supernova. But we don't know when. We expect it will occur somewhere between uh, 100,000 years to a, a million years from now. But what's been capturing everyone's imagination is that Betelgeuse has been dimming, and it's been dimming quite substantially. Now, Betelgeuse is typically quite bright. In fact, it's usually brighter than the red star Aldebaran just next to it. Uh, but it's been substantially, and with the latest reports, it's dimmer than its companion star in the shoulders of Orion. Bellatrix. People are reporting that Betelgeuse is dimmer than, uh, as, as bright as, or dimmer than Bellatrix. So that's putting its magnitude uh, around about 1.6, and possibly uh, a bit dimmer towards about uh, 1.7. So this is uh, the deepest dimming of uh, Betelgeuse uh, in over 50 years observing this star. Now, Betelgeuse is uh, normally actually slightly variable. If you're just looking at Betelgeuse casually, you probably won't notice it's a slight change in indictment. But if you're an acute observer, such as the indigenous Australian, you'll be able to see that over the period of a year, Betelgeuse will uh, be slightly brighter and slightly dimmer. And so there's approximately three different brightening dim cycles. The star periodically pops up and becomes dimmer and then collapses down a bit brighter and you also have the dust being dredged up by convection currents and you also have periodic sunspots occurring. All of these combine to produce different cycles of brightening and dimming. Very good, Ian. Well, Betelgeuse is going to pop 
but don't hold your breath. <laughs> Definitely don't hold your breath. We've got astrophysicists say we reduce to explode soon. They're talking in terms of tens of thousands of years. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a pleasure to be on, and uh, this is quite an interesting time to be an observer, a visual observer. There's so many things going on. You can see with the unaided eye, which is really good. Step outside and look up. Bye now. Goodbye. And here is the Astrophys news. First up, some more bad news for professional and amateur astronomers. As predicted on this show last year, more companies are launching huge fleets of satellites to compete for the global internet market. Today, Thursday, February 6, 2020, Following in Elon Musk's inglorious footsteps, OneWeb launched 34 satellites from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, and these satellites join the six already in orbit as the first phase of their 648 fleet constellation, which will eventually become 5,000 satellites in orbit. This is not philanthropy to make the internet freely available to all. This is maverick entrepreneurship, which will steal the heritage of humanity's ability to clearly see the night sky forever. A pox on all their houses. Next, Vale Spitzer. Last week, NASA's Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope has been retired after 17 glorious years. Again, it was designed for a two and a half year mission but it provided such stunning data and discoveries it just kept on going. A credit to the scientists, designers and engineers. In its time, it produced over half a million high-res images at four separate infrared wavelengths. It found protostars with crystal rain. It found a gas giant planet orbiting a star 13,000 light-years away. And despite never being designed as a planet hunter, it has found an impressive haul of exoplanets, including five of the famous TRAPPIST-1 exoplanets. So congratulations Spitzer and all who sailed in her. Your legacy data is a rich trove which keeps on giving. And don't forget to check out the Scientist's podcast, It's Fantastic with Angel Sanchez-Lopez and Kristen Banks. And you'll get all your space news with Rami Mandel and the team at spaceaustralia.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.